You are listening to Australia's number one wine podcast, The Vincast. I'd just like to thank you everyone for tuning in to episode 100 of the podcast, which was with Gilda Puri from Yeringberg Wines. Uh, but even more, I'd like to thank everyone who actually got in contact with me about the episode, uh, particularly uh, all the former guests who uh, have been supporting me, uh, but also everyone who uh, has listened to uh, previous episodes uh, and has uh, shared their experiences online. If you'd like to go on the chance to win a, uh, a beautiful hand-illustrated wine map of the Yarra Valley wine region by podcast listener and sommelier Linus Wilson, please go to the iTunes page for the Vincast uh, and leave a rating and in your review, mention uh, which was your favorite episode of the podcast and, uh, and we'll ship one out to you. Uh, I really appreciate everyone listening to the podcast, of course, uh, getting in contact with me and uh, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. On episode 101 of the Vincast, I chat with Sierra Reed Milne, former model and travel program host turned winemaker. there Vincasters, welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and it is fabulous to uh, be able to have a, a new episode for you uh, and to hopefully uh, be able to bring out episodes on a slightly more regular basis uh, back to the weekly schedule. Thank you for everyone's patience whilst I uh, try to uh, fit a few pieces of the puzzle into place. Uh, but um, I've got lots and lots of uh, potential guests coming up who I was, am really excited to introduce you to, uh, particularly uh, this week's guest. Her name is Sierra Reed Milne, uh, originally from the United States. She has uh, had quite an interesting journey uh, to wine and uh, subsequently to winemaking. And uh, she's someone that has been recommended by quite a few people uh, to me, by all accounts, making some really exciting wines of her own. Uh, and it was really fascinating to sit down and find out about her journey and what's influenced her winemaking. Uh, and uh, as you can, you'll hear, uh, really, really amazing story and, uh, and, and loves a chat. So I do hope you enjoy this week's episode. Stick around so you can find out more about uh, how you can stay in contact with Sierra. Uh, but until then, I'll see you on the other side. Okay, well, I'm in uh, very sunny, surprisingly, uh, Torquay today, and I'm sitting here in the lovely home of Sierra Reed Milne, who is my guest for this episode of the podcast. Sierra, thank you very much for welcoming me and, and making some time to be on the show. Thanks for coming down to see us. That's a pleasure. Uh, Sierra, uh, as you may know, I uh, typically start every episode by asking my guest if they can remember if there was a particular incident or an experience that they had that made them think about wine in a different way that set them on the path to dedicating themselves to wine? Yeah, well, I think everybody has one of those, and I definitely do. Um, I was doing a television show in New Zealand with the family of 12. I was hosting it for a couple of years, and um, I remember the second season, which would have been 2011, I was interviewing a viticulturalist named Kane, who was now at Pyramid Valley, I think. Mm. And I remember just this overwhelming feeling of being so jealous and, and have such envy of what I was witnessing the last couple of um, vint harvests that I had filmed with them. And it was, it was like somebody was strangling me. It was, it was crazy. And I just looked at him and I said, I'm going to say the craziest thing ever because um, this is not my background at all. But if I were to tell you that I'd really like to get into the production side of this, um, am I too late? And I swear if you would have told me right then, like, yeah, you know, you didn't go to school, you're already 25, you know, forget about it. 25. At the time I was 25. Well, I just thought you had to, you know, you had to have a heavy background of schooling because I didn't want to just 
buy grapes and make wine. I also wanted to have mm. a, a vineyard and understand that. And but if if you knew about like the 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 swathe of um, professionals like lawyers and doctors and stuff like that who in their probably forties bought land just outside of Melbourne to plant a vineyard to make their wine, you know, you probably would have thought, oh, 25, that's still plenty of time. That's young. Yeah, but those are the families that I was interviewing at the time. Yeah. At that time, I was really, really pretty layman on my knowledge of wine. Mm-hmm. It was more, um, I had a television background and I was in the entertainment business for a long time as a model. So really- Did you drink wine yourself? Though? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And did, and did you sort of have a taste for quite- good quality wine and kind of could discern, discern between different grapes and maybe different countries, that kind of thing? No, couldn't do different countries, but Not definitely different grapes. Okay. Um, yeah, Pegasus Bay Pinot was my favorite Pinot. Okay. Um, but basically whatever I was exposed to, I enjoyed. And if you put great wine in front of people that don't understand wine and crap wine together, they'll always pick the great wine. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, because... But BuzzFeed doesn't seem to think so because they did that video where they, they, they did three wines blind with people and they, and they picked the cheapest wine so that all of, all of my Facebook friends said, ha-ha, James, you uh, know, in there's my no experience, difference. No, in my experience, <laughs> 90% of the time people don't understand why mm-hmm. but they will choose the quality. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I'm sitting there asking him this question and he looked at me and he said, well, you know, there's something called the Wesset program, mm-hmm. which he wrote it down on a piece of paper on his business card. And I looked into that and thought, Jesus is just not going to get me there fast enough. And then I started talking to people about vintages and that whole vintage circuit and that experience of doing internships around yep. the world. Now, yep. getting my foot in the door was really hard. I probably sent off 200 blind emails um, to Chile, back home in California. I was really targeting um, and I finally got my foot through the door because I wrote on my resume that I was on Survivor, <laughs> and I was using anything. Um, and how did, how did you research which wineries to get in contact with? Well, I was choosing areas, so the Central Coast of California. Okay. Um, but I just Google anyone who had an email address that was. I would uh, literally email tasting rooms. Yeah. I just was doing anything I could. It wasn't, there wasn't a lot of thought involved in it. There was just a feeling that this is what I'm going to go get and I don't care how I get it. I'm just going to get there and get it. Okay. Um, A lot of them responded um, and would say, you know, well, first I even started with the family of 12 and all they could really see me as was the TV face. Can you, can you just fill me in and the listeners in what's family of 12? So that's um, a group a congregation of wineries in New Zealand, like the the four families here, or what is it called? Australia's First Families of Wine. There, there you go. So it's a very similar group in New Zealand, and it's Pegasus Bay, Felton Road, Noidoff, Cumi River, um, Lawson's Dry Hills. Yeah. Like the best. Okay. Amazing. Um, in a lot, from, a lot of sort of the pioneers, that kind of thing. In, correct. In their region. Yeah. yeah. So there was a TV st- show structured around them during vintage and i went that they commissioned or you would send to do something for them yeah so air new zealand um they had a big hand in it because it was a lot of the in-flight um international stuff that was that was where it was going to be essentially small documentaries 30 minute clips on each family yeah um as destination pieces how did you end up doing that well, what, what actually, taking it back a little bit, so you are yeah. originally from California? Yeah. Which part of California? Uh, San Diego and LA. Parents are divorced, so. Okay. So, so, so Cal? Bounced around both sides. Yeah. Um, and what? tell me a little bit about the journey of getting into sort of modeling and, and then television and stuff like that. Well, at 15, 16, yeah. um, right on the brink, I was always walked up to as a kid to model. And I had no interest. As a that actually does happen? Oh, a lot. In the States, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially LA. In California, I would think, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's shallow. Um, <laughs> so I get walked up to a lot, but I was a sports kid. I was a basketball player. I didn't like cheerleaders. So mm-hmm. modeling wasn't my thing. But somebody kept saying, oh, your daughter would be great in Milan. Or Whoa. she'd do really well in Hong Kong. And that for me was like, oh, actually I could be into this because 
I get to travel with it. And yeah. that was became a massive goal of mine with modeling. Um, was, okay, I'm going to try this, but I'm not going to just be a model in L.A. Mm-hmm. And it's not about that. For me, it was about filling my passport, seeing the world. So it wasn't necessarily about a lifestyle thing or getting ahead in, in fashion or, or, or money. You you were particularly interested in sort of travel and, and experiencing culture, that kind of thing? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, at a very young age. That's not um, shallow at all then. Um, no. No, I mean, there's <laughs> – that's, oppo- that's I definitely made good money yeah. along the way. Okay. Um, and had no idea actually what um, – you know, my dad always said my concept of money was very skewed because of it. Mm. Um. Or my mom maybe said that. But, you know, in that sense that you make a lot of money for one thing that not normal people, like having a normal job, yeah, um, would make in a day. Yeah. So your idea of that hard work would be a little bit different than everybody else's. So, yeah. yeah. But I traveled around the world. Um, and Did you have any particular favorite places that you went to? Uh, I loved living in Hong Kong. Didn't like working with the Chinese. Mm. Um, pretty ruthless. Mm. I always say with the Chinese, you always get... The shortest of, so make sure that when you're drawing a straw, you always get the longest of the short end of the stick. Yeah. <laughs> it's always, you have to do whatever you can to get it. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I continued to travel throughout Europe. Um, lived in Italy for six months. Wow. Never ate a single piece of pasta. So this last trip oh. when I went, I... Sally and I ate copious that, amounts of pasta. Was that like, uh, it was drilled into you, it's like you have to really be so careful about your diet? Mm. Mm. So my experiences traveling had nothing to do with food okay. you know, when I was modeling, which is really crazy because now revisiting these places, it's like I go to Hong Kong and I go straight for dumplings. Particularly with the interest in wine. <laughs> yeah. So it's a huge life change. Sure. But for about the next 10 years across the board, I lived all around the world. Right. I'm, I'm on my third passport. So, um, just cause you filled them. Yeah. Wow. And one had 25 sheets put into it as well. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I lived and worked a lot in different countries and I really am grateful for those experiences. Um, and then I came home and, um, was asked to be on Survivor. Very quite random. So you, American Survivor. You, were, you weren't like, they said, we'd like you to be on it. Was this like a celebrity survivor or something? No. Or, well, so I didn't really. I thought you just had to apply for it. They yeah. they actually approached you t- and said yes. we'd like you to be on. Yeah. Which season was that? Eighteen. Eighteen. Yeah. It really shows you how long that that show's been going for. Yes. It's. I think. The where 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 was that? Uh, the desert of Brazil. The desert of Brazil. Yeah, token chains. Okay. Um, but that's the other the other way she looped me in. The producer, she said, I can guarantee you've never been to this country before. And that's how she got me. Really? Yeah. Because, I mean, modeling is and fashion and... and not in Brazil. No, not very big. No, South okay. Africa, Because a friend of mine, he works in sort of PR and events and stuff like that and, and fashions. I mean, maybe that's a lot more recent. There's a, there's a really... There has been up until recently. There's been a pretty big um, growth in middle class and, and wealthy people. And so yeah. there's been a lot of investment in terms of fashion brands. It's also very dangerous. So I always tend to stay away from the more dangerous locations because as a young model, you are on foot. Sure. Um, and you are finding your own way as a 17-year-old with 25 places to go and you have to be at those appointments on time. You get lost. You don't speak the language. You have to find your own way That's around. That's correct, yeah. You don't have a chaperone or anything? Uh, the only time I ever had a chaperone was in Taiwan. I had a driver. Wow. That, that's really surprising. Yeah. So it's if you imagine if you're going to places like Cape Town, which I did, denied going to because I had some friends who had some bad experiences getting yeah. mugged. I mean, um, Cape Town, like Johannesburg's really bad, but even Cape Town can be pretty bad. Yeah. Well, parts of Brazil can be pretty rough. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I had a Brazilian I boyfriend to... at the time, so I knew that as well. Yeah. Um, I was always, when I was in Rio, I was always advised, okay, take very little cash out, don't take any ID, no credit cards, no passports, nothing when you're going out. <laughs> well, I never got to go to Rio. I was okay. basically blindfolded going into Brazil, signing three visas. So Seriously? Not, not knowing Blindfolded. Where we were, you, had, you didn't even know what we were co- country you were going to. No, so when we went to Miami, right. we were all on no talking. So we get, to, we get to Miami, and the moment we got to Miami, we weren't allowed to speak, but we were allowed to see. But um, I knew we were going to Brazil because it's a straight shot. And then right. f- from there on, 
Um, after that next flight, we were blindfolded in cars and, and taken out um, to the desert of Brazil on these like 18-hour safari tracks. What would you do for 18 hours blindfolded and not being able to talk? Nothing. Oh, my God. Yeah, but this is not what the show is about. And I, and <laughs> I really looked forward to the day that I never had to use that I was on Survivor on my resume, that I had built enough um, places that I had done vintage mm -hmm. that I no longer had to use my past. Mm -hmm. And that I finally felt in some ways that made me feel like I belong now. Um, so as cool as it is, um, I don't want it to consume this podcast because no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm interested yeah. and the listeners are interested. Yeah. No, I'm just saying it is, it's a, it's what got me in the door. They sure. literally wrote back, the Hearst family wrote back, um, well, if you could do survivor, you could do a vintage because a lot of people were also discriminating that, um, because of the way I physically looked that I probably couldn't work very hard. Mm. That was the vibe I was getting, mm -hmm. um, which made me want to work even harder. So I ended up working for the Hearst family. I would have um, thought that they would at least recognize that, you know, independence and, and having to fight for what, for what you need. Like that, that, there's hard a, there's to do a that certain amount of email. physical, yeah, I guess. It's hard. I mean, when I arrived, they put me in the tasting room and they promised me a vintage. And right. I was like, oh, this is crazy. So they were still making me prove myself in many ways. Yeah. Um, but so after I had finished my second season of harvest in New Zealand where I'd been living for three years. I had a, a great relationship and I looked at him and I was just like, I don't know what clicked. I don't know why it happened. It was just like this snap in me that everything I had done before that in life, mm. although really cool and very interesting, mm. was all because of this moment. Mm. I mm -hmm. felt that in mm -hmm. my soul. And I looked at him and I said, I've got, I've got to go. He's like, but you have the best job here. You eat degustation. You hang out with the family of 12 and they give you, you know, magnums of Felton Road. You know, just, you know, you just have a great life. Even the winemaker said they want your life. And I was like, no, I just, I, I feel I have to do this. Mm -hmm. So I finally got a job and that was in Paso Robles with the Hearst family. Just going back to, um, I'm interested to know, do you, do you think that work, like when you started in the tasting room, was, was that an, at least a, a positive experience engaging with wine consumers and people who wanted to learn? Did you get a lot out of that yourself? Uh, absolutely. It was, um, for me, I was so humbled by even being somebody saying yes that I didn't, I think they were afraid that because of where I came from and my background and um, the luxuries I was used to, that I might be, uh, felt like I was entitled. So I think it's another part of the way that they probably put me in the tasting room and thought, oh, okay, if she can be humbled by this and make $8 an hour before taxes and if she's still kicking around and fighting for it. It's, I mean, like, it's like if you want to be a chef and they put you on on dishes. Well, you electively to go to the with, end of yeah, the line. I yeah. was electively going. Sure. So it, so I was didn't care what I had to do. Mm -hmm. I remember one day in the cellar um, was the only time that the, I worked with all men, of course, um, and the septic tank had exploded and was coming up into the winery. And yeah, today, I don't know how I'd feel about it, but back then, man, I just didn't even roll up my sleeve. I just put my arm down in there and was trying to twist and twist and unplug it and get the screen to come. I just had this tenacity mm -hmm. that was like, I don't care if I have to lose a, a finger or a hand doing this. Yeah, Just the um, amazing amount of passion that was just coming out of my pores. I didn't care. I didn't care what I had to do, what I had to lose. What it, it, just, mm -hmm. it was so amazing. Mm -hmm. And I could not deny the feeling. Mm -hmm. And I've never denied myself whimsical feelings like that. I mean, that's how I traveled around the world and modeled people would say getting in the car and going to canada we're driving over 24 hours no one's sleeping hell yeah i'm going <laughs> I <was just> like, <laughs> never been to canada before you know most people that just go oh i'm sorry i've got something on i've got an obligation yeah that you was think never of reasons me. why you can't do it not why you should do it it was never me me mm. i was always like yes yes i'll just do it and we'll make it happen and we'll make it work mm. And um, I think that's why I got to where I am today. Um, but in a nutshell, that's kind of, I spent 10 years modeling around the world. Then I kind of went on this weird experiment of Survivor and it really um, changed me as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
in a really great way. Uh, it taught me that I could use my body in ways I never knew. I climbed to the tops of trees. I built stuff with my hands. And um, it was really liberating feeling for me because mm-hmm. as a model, it's not exactly what you're taught to do. You know, you don't use a lot of your body unless you're going to the gym yeah. or yoga. Yeah. Uh, so it was great to know that I could be really strong. Uh, I hadn't, since I was a kid, played basketball. So after you know modeling, I wasn't really being very you know athletic or anything. So it was really great. It's, it's more about how you look rather than what you can, what you're actually physically capable of. Yeah, it it's exactly what it is. But in order to make myself continue to do it for ten years, I never thought about it like that. Sure. I always thought about it as an opportunity. To yeah, yeah. do really cool things and to see a lot in the world. And on every day off, I was jumping in a bus or going on a train somewhere, seeing mm. another part of the country that I was living in. And I was eating exactly what the locals were eating, besides carbs. Um, but I just, I made only mostly local friends. I wanted to really be immersed. Mm. Um, and yeah, and I mean, New Zealand for me, I mean, it's tattooed on the inside of my finger. Uh, I always said if New Zealand was a man, I'd marry him. (laughs) Uh, But I jumped the ditch and ended up marrying an Australian, so we're close enough. Um, But yeah, New Zealand changed my life in so many ways. I've been revisiting that country since 2006 Mm -hmm. um, as a model and then as a TV presenter. And then I went back and worked at Ripon and and Wine. So it really, um, for me has a pull on my what event what originally brought you to new zealand was was it the modeling yeah and and how quickly did you kind of just fall in love with new zealand as a country and say that i'd, I'd like to sort of stay here and pursue you know opportunities that will keep me living in new zealand well new zealand's like leaving the city and going to country air um even in, even if you're in the city it's like this automatic feeling that when you step out the the groundingness of it and the feeling of clear air it's it's there it has i i feel like my life you know in the past had, had was born from there mm-hmm. i just don't know how to explain it i've been so many places in the world that i know when something grabs me i i always listen mm-hmm. and new zealand always had this pull on me mm-hmm. and new zealand threw me threw me so many great opportunities that i took Mm. Um, I wanted a travel show right after I got off Survivor. People were like, yeah, yeah, you and everybody else in your 15 minutes, sweetheart. And I'm like, no, seriously, I want to work for like the National Geographics. I want to just like travel. I want to do all these. And they're like, yeah, well, well, good luck. Like you and all the other blondies in the world want to have these luxurious travel shows. And I was like, I don't care what it is. Mm. So me and my boyfriend broke up in LA and I just said, "What's what was the last favorite place that you've been that you just want to feel better about yourself. And I got on the plane and I went to New Zealand and I was there for two weeks and I was filming a commercial for some fashion company and a girl came up to me and she said, would you ever consider doing a travel show? <laughs> and I what just like know? looked up. The, like, the universe listened. Did you read that book, The Secret by any chance? And you were just visualizing it and then it happened? <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm weird, but not that weird. But yes, no. Um, no, that's exactly how it happened, actually. Wow. She literally said that. Yeah. And I was so taken back that I looked at her and I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> what are you saying? Um, and then here we were sitting down a week later. And then I was sitting on the, the top of Mount Eden, I think. No. Anyways, some little crater area in, the, in Auckland and um, popping a most disgusting small little Prosecco with my old friend saying, oh my gosh, I have a travel show. Wow. And yeah, that started my journey for three years. So I also had a travel show on the side. So mm-hmm. I worked with lots of great chefs um, in New Zealand, like um, one who owns Christian from mm-hmm. um, Town Mouse um, and Empla. Matterhorn. Yeah. So I interviewed Matterhorn and Mighty Mighty. And mm-hmm. so I knew him when Evan was like, oh, I'm selling wine. I was like, I know Christian. <laughs> So it was really amazing how that that overlap happened. Um, And even Noidoff, my husband distributes Noidoff now. And when Judy wrote him an email, he said, you might know my wife's here. And she said, oh, yes, (laughs) loves a drink. 
beautiful girl. Like, <laughs> because when we go there, we just, we, we'd have the most amazing 24 hours with these families. Um, and a lot of them are still quite close to me, like Mon from uh, Milton, mm -hmm. um, Monique, the daughter, um, and Edward Donaldson. Mm -hmm. We still always stay in touch. And he wrote me a message um, after saying that my, I think, Grenache was sold out, that he was really proud of me. And it was just an amazing thing to hear because I, I wrote back, well, it's because of you guys. Yeah. So I you, always say that to them. It's, so it was because of them. Living in New Zealand, working in a travel show and meeting um, wine producers and, you know, restaurateurs, chefs, that kind of thing. Was that where you sort of t started to really get interested in in food and wine culture? You know, like some of you hadn't really as much been able to do when you were traveling as a model? Oh, absolutely. You could not because I'd be in the back of the kitchens cooking with the chefs. Right, okay. So that was part of the travel episodes. Yep. Like, um, you know, Moulton in New Zealand, a great restaurant. I mean, I was actually traveling for our harvest show with a chef. Right. And basically the segment was he did the cooking. So he did like with Nigel from Felton Road. They did like a goat stew and they do this episode where they forage. Okay. And they're doing cooking. And then I'm doing the interviewing um, and jumping naked in vats with Blair, um, doing pijaging and yeah. misbehaving and having a lot of fun and yeah. being wild. Um, yeah. But still talking about, you know, the birth of what they were doing. Um, so I was kind of the mischievous, layman, fun personality that was just you know, having fun with the family. And then there was this chef who, who he knew more about wine and food than I did. But you were learning about wine as along you were the going way. along. Absolutely. It, it wasn't you know, Not it was slightly like, a, like you're, you're playing to a character that was your role on the, the travel show was that you were the, oh, I'm learning about stuff. But like you were actually starting to know a lot, a lot more about wine as you were going through? Yeah, well, the greatest way to connect with somebody who's – in an, a large audience of, that doesn't know a lot about wine, because a lot of people don't know about wine the way we do. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that kind of education has to be sought out. Sure. Um, but if somebody is on a show, like we never looked at the screen. We always were having conversations yeah. on the side. Yeah. And if somebody's learning along the way with the audience, the audience actually feels like they're a part of it. Mm -hmm. And they feel like they're learning too, as opposed to being told. So, yeah, no, I think it, that was that they wanted that balance because uh, I still am, am yet to um, find a wine education show that appeals to everyone. Um, I've, well, there's this new British one called The Wine Show that I want to check out. Apparently, it's not too bad. The Wine Show? Yeah. Is it the one where the guy from Top Gear? Uh, no, no, that, that was, um, I think the one you're talking about is Oz and James. Yeah, wine see, that adventure. was very that's, funny. That's an older one. Yeah, of course. Because no, no. he was one of them was taking the piss the whole time. Yeah. So I was more like a Top Gear guy. Okay. Right? Always slightly a little dusty, like funny. Okay. Um. Well, that, and that, and that, I think that makes it a little bit more accessible thing. because it's, that's, you know, let, let's be honest, that's what why most people drink wine is it's like... Uh, let's get a bit tipsy and, and have fun, and the next morning go, ooh, maybe you had one too many glasses. Mm. Most people aren't kind of talking about the aromatics and the, and the texture and stuff like that and why it pairs so well with this kind of dish. People just like enjoying the wine. If they, if they learn a little bit along the way, that's fantastic. But most people are just relaxed and just trying to enjoy their wine, not getting so analytical and technical about the wine like, you know, a lot of wine professionals are. Oh, I find that um, the only time that I ever speak like that is when it's invited. Right, okay. And it's really important because then I think we segregate yeah. our, our customers, our future customers. Yeah. We're segregating them by going, oh, this whole bunch or this pH or, you know, things mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. which are super important to us mm -hmm. and they are the language that we speak. But to think that everybody speaks that... Um, it segregates them. It makes them intimidated. And yep. so, I, I mean, I have a, a great mentor as a husband who's always kind of taught me that um, he's an, just an incredible host and he knows hospitality. He's flawless in that sense. And yep. he's always just made everything about the other person. Yep. Um, I'm not that gracious, but 
um, it has taught, he has taught me a lot in Mm -hmm. that sense of, you know, listening, um, being aware of your audience and, um, yeah, I mean, wine journey is endless, isn't it? Mm. Um, and the hospitality industry is totally intertwined and in bed with it. So, Mm -hmm. um, you have to kind of learn both sides and how to speak from both, you know, seats. So, Yeah. yeah. So the family of 12 after that, um, I went off to California. Mm, Paso um, Robles. Yeah, which... Paso Robles. Yeah, Robles. Paso Robles. <laughs> That's straight from a Mexican's mouth. Yes. Um, I worked for the Hearst family. I don't know if you know who the Hearst family is. Yeah, uh, I've, I've heard of them. William Randolph Hearst, the Hearst Castle. Yep. Yeah, so really amazing opportunity to meet a lot of other people. Like mm-hmm. George Bush Jr. would come to our events. Um, wow. Sharon Stone, Susan Sarandon. Um, yeah, it was like I got to uh, go and visit the castle and see things that no other, nobody else could see. It was it was really cool. Um, but at the same time, looking back on it, it's, it's hilarious because it's probably uh, some of the last wines I would drink on earth. Mm. Because I am, if you look at my wines today, they are really the complete opposite of that. Um, are they what I kind of call, call very deliberate wines? They they kind of go. This is what we're going for. This is the kind of wine we want to make, and they sort of work back from there. Rather than we start with these grapes and let's see what happens along the way. Oh, there's a huge combination of mentality, like a, the way that people approach wine in Paso as opposed to Napa. Yeah, people in Paso are a little bit more cowboy about it, which is awesome to see yeah. because, you know, you have um, uh, Chateau Beaucastel, they have Tobles Creek there, yep. and there's still some Brett in those wines. So, and that's completely ex- acceptable. Mm-hmm. You go to Napa and like, you can't even have pyrazines in the wines, even though Cabernet, you know. So it's, it's no, I would definitely say that Paso allows the, the fruit to ferment to wherever it stops, mm-hmm. which could be up to 16%. Um, they're more willing to be rustic mm-hmm. with their cleanliness and lees work and old barrels and all different kinds of things. But the area doesn't produce wines that I want to be making or right. really always want to be drinking because I like drinking lower alcohol, softer tannin, pure ethereal wines. And those wines are like, bloody and you know they i mean everybody's making it uh, all different kinds um, when when do you think that you started to ha- have a preference for those kind of wines and do you can can you sort of think about perhaps the kind of wines that you were drinking that you connected with that m- possibly led you to want to make wines like that and, and and the kind of wines that you wanted to drink yeah, it was before I even did vintage here. I came and visited, and a friend opened a bottle of 10 Minutes by Tractor. Okay. Um, Interesting. And I was absolutely blown away because it really looked like not very much in the glass, and not that I, not, you know, what I was used to. Um, well, most people kind of look at, you know, a red wine and go, look at how dark that is, look at how intense that is that's a really serious wine and then they might look at a, a really light, lithe Pinot Noir or Gamay and think, oh, look, like that's just like wimpy. You know, what's what's that? That's that's not really going to have much personality or character to it. And and I, one of the things that I love about what's happening um, in Melbourne at the moment and, you know, probably in other cities in Australia is that there's this real boom in light uh, and slightly more savoury red wines. It's really exciting to see. Oh, absolutely. That's why I'm here. So <laughs> I remember Evan said to me, so do you want to be at home making wine or do you want to be in Victoria? And that 10 minutes by tractor wine pulled me in um, because the Mornington intrigued me because right. there was there's so much power um, in the Mornington mm-hmm. as far as you know their wines, but it's not visual. It's You know what I mean? It's something that you just have to dive into and start understanding and man to have that much restraint in wines in the region and Mm. to have so much it's has no identity crisis the mornington Mm. you know Mm. from for me at least and the wines that i've i've drank um and that's why wine's very personal 
Mornington is Mornington blind when you yeah. try these, especially the Pinot and the Shards. Yeah. Blind, if you know the area, you know the wine and you know where it comes from. Now, where I usually come from in California, the wines look more like the man than the area. Yes. So, or okay. because they're very taken control of. Mm-hmm. So they look like they're from the region because of the, the way that the man has collectively considered what a standard quality bar to hit looks like. Yeah. And I won't name any areas because I have so much love for everywhere I've worked. Um, but it wasn't for me. And I think why I was really into the Mornington was because that area knew what it was, not because of of the way the man was making it. It was because that that is definitely these wines are representative of where they're from. It's possibly a couple of exceptions, but I agree completely. Well, I'm not from here. So if you imagine that that's me coming in after leaving California, yeah. where it re- wine is really about its master, and I'm coming to Victoria where wine is really about its region what, and its t- sense of place. And So the experiences you had with Mornington – you sort of were tasting several different Pinot Noirs and realizing, oh, I can identify characteristics that are specific to Mornington Peninsula. Was that quite a a, a revelatory experience? For yes, you? absolutely. <laughs> like that was that's why I'm here today. Yeah, yeah, it's I I don't know if I'll ever make wine from the Mornington. I don't think I ever will. But um, and I am into you know, Italian varietals and all for, you know, trying new things in different areas. But I, I today love it just the way it is. Yeah. Um, and it was a really big eye opener for me. And it was, it made me go, okay, well, I want to be home. There's more money to be made in the Napa Valley, um, as a young winemaker. Um, and you can build status quite fast. And, you know, Australians here, you know, you, you're, always, you're always at the bottom before you ever get to the top, even if you are lucky enough to get to the top. It's just not, not the way it is here. I think that's changing. I really do think that's changing. Yeah, it, it is, but not the way in the States. So in not, the States, not, not, you can not as, yeah. you could just. I, I think probably one of the things that the, the U.S. has over Australia is just the population. Um, there, there are more opportunities because they're just this is more people. You can find the, a niche in the US, particularly somewhere like California or New York, is so much bigger than a niche would be in Melbourne. So you know you 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 can have more success, particularly you know financially, and you can sell a lot more wine selling to even a small niche over in the US than you could in Australia. Uh, I think that possibly, but do you think that might have an impact on it? Um, it's we're just more about branding, you know, Napa sure. Valley Cabernet, right? Right, that is a brand in itself. Um, and here, like Yara, is beginning to get a little bit like that, you know, Yara Valley Pinot Noir, and um, but not, it's not exactly the same as it is in Napa. Um, I was really surprised visiting the Barossa that. Um, we're going up there and working with Alex in 2013 and going, well, this is so strange. Where are all the Michelin star restaurants and, um, the tourist buses and why aren't you charging $45 to try wines here? And wow, this place still looks like it's, you know, hasn't been developed. Barely an hour out of Adelaide and it looks like proper country. (laughs) Yeah. But I have, because Americans know Australia as Barossa. Yeah, you know, as Brosson is the hub of the wine, if you're if you just know a little bit about yep. Australia, yep. that you would have just thought, oh, they would have turned it into what what we call Disneyland Napa Valley. It's like the adult Disneyland, Sec- the second most visited tourist attraction in California behind Dis- Disneyland. So that's why I'm trying to explain to you. It obviously is a very powerful branding thing, but sure. but for me to discover wine and learn about it, I didn't necessarily want to fall in love with it or learn from it in a place that um, knew how to make its consumer accept anything it was giving them. You Mm -hmm. know, it was like training your consumer. And for me, I wanted to come to an area that you couldn't really do that. And you can't, you can't really do that here. You cannot really, um, there's a humbleness about 
the way everybody does things here um, yeah. in the winemaking side. Yeah. And there's an honesty about it um, that there's no way you can be successful in this industry here um, unless you embody some of those those uh, humble nature or honesty or or doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, and and most of the time, the greatest winemakers here are doing it and they they don't really make a lot of money doing it mm. which is for me i think that coexists with making great wine you know? tell me a little bit about um, some of the other vintage experiences you've had in the lead up to when you decided that you wanted to establish your own thing uh, you know in terms of your own wines uh well after working for six months in paso i left and did a vintage at Domaine Chandon mm-hmm. um, with Dan Buckle, his first vintage. And I was still very, you know, go-getter. But I was, I'd was i be asking these questions when we were doing work orders. You know, I worked from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., six days a week. And you you're know? doing the night shift. Oh, yeah. Which is, I mean, it's, once again, I learned a lot there about um, the way I didn't want to do things. Um, and it was, it was a really great experience for me. Um, and that's where I met my best friend, Sally humble. Um, so I couldn't, I wouldn't have met my husband without that experience. But I mean, I remember asking why we were doing a lot of things and even at the right time at lunchtime or, and those questions were not invited. And I knew that the only way I was ever going to be successful faster than other people um, who were, there's a huge community of kids and in, go, doing internships around the world and following the sun. So mm-hmm. I'm not the only one who's, um, and I thought, geez, how am I going to get there faster? And I said, I'm, I need mentors that are invested. And that experience was great for me because now owning a cellar today or having a shed and then now building a winery, when I'm buying equipment, um, I tap into some of those experiences and go, oh, okay, well, I remember using that one tool that m- small sellers would never have used. Yeah. But because I worked in a big seller, that actually can get us really far. And we could do things and save us time and efficiency without without actually um, hurting the wine, you know, still keep being sensitive with being a really hands-on winemaker. But it, it taught me how to think about all different kinds of ways of making wine and, and what to utilize. And I really draw from some of those experiences, but um, yeah, I being asking questions wasn't invited. So it was really about wor- working hard mm-hmm. um, and observing. They're just, it's really hard to observe when, you know, 20,000 tons is just getting dumped in front of you yeah, and your flow meter is running at this and that. And you're like, this is just not um, what I expected, but um, I'm going to hold on tight and, and you know, ride it out and learn from it later. And what I learned is that from then on, I didn't want to work in a cellar with 27 interns. I wanted to be the only intern. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that would ensure that I would learn a lot. I would be able to do sampling in the vineyard. I would learn about doing analysis there. I would be coming to tastings with the winemaker. If I was lucky, I'd be doing everything and I because they needed mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And that's how I knew, okay. And then I would ask them to be, you know, I, I didn't go to school for this. So I'm looking for mentors who want to educate. So, yeah. And that's what I continue to do after that experience at Shandong. So after Shandon, I went back to Napa Valley, um, or I went to Napa Valley for the first time to make wine, and I was um, what Timo Mayer makes fun of me for all the time, a cellar master. I had a cellar master title for six months, and when I, when I was helping out with Timo, he would be like, oh, cellar master, oh, come here. He just loved to make fun of me. Um, took that one off my resume. Um, <laughs> And I went there and I worked uh, for six months and I pl- made my first half ton of Pinot Noir um, that the assistant winemaker, Macario, um, said, hey, you know, I'll let you go pick it and tell me what the date, everything like that. I'll let you make it. Um, it's still mine, but I'll give you a couple cases of it and a couple magnums. And he gave me my first opportunity, right. um, which was amazing because I think about it now and it's like, it seems so long ago, but mm. 
um, I remember him saying stuff like, well, how much sulfur do you want to add? And I'd be like, hold on, I've really got to go to the bathroom. I run to, and I think that he thought I knew more than I did because I had a couple of vintages under my belt. And I was like, all right. I went on the, I was in the bathroom Googling how many parts per million to add to like this much stuff <laughs> and what a lower amount was. Cause when I first started, everything was about doing nothing. Right. Yeah. Um, and I come back out and I'd be like 30. He's like, wow, that's quite low. So maybe just go a little bit higher. And I'm like, okay, okay, 40. But I really didn't know what I was talking about, which is, it's actually beautiful when I think about it because I wasn't meant to know, you know? And I loved how sometimes people always thought, think that we all, we all know. I didn't, I didn't go to school, so I didn't know that. Still till this day, I called Tessa when I'm filling out a bottling line sheet and I'm like, what does that mean? And it's, it, it's still hurts my ego slightly, but it's my reality. Um, and that's, and in order to do things right, you have to swallow it. Uh-huh. And sometimes you have great friends that you can, that, that know heaps and have yeah. been in the industry for what, 15, 20 years. Yeah. I haven't, I've been in it for just under five. So. But what's really interesting is that, you know, I've had the, the, the really good fortune of uh, interviewing people who've been involved in Australian wine industry for 60 years or something like that, you know, like Viv Thompson from Bests and Gil DePuri uh, on episode 100 uh, from Yeringberg. And even they talked about, you know, when they were younger and they were starting, you know, to really focus on um, making better wines, they they traveled. They went to different, you know, other historic wineries and sort of asked them, oh, so how do you do this kind of thing? And, and they kind of went, oh, you know, like, oh, there's this new press, you should check it out, that kind of thing. So that that's really a, such an important part of wine and, and wanting to make better wine, I think. Um, and that's probably, I guess, I don't know if it's necessarily the same overseas, but I think that that's a really important part of, of the Australian wine industry is that there, there is a, a lot of collaboration and people are quite happy to share information as long as you can meet like-minded people and, you know, you like the wines that they make then, you know, they're a great resource to to help you make decisions and, and maybe change the way you think or find new ways of doing something. Hmm. Absolutely. I think um, what's important about going to do all these vintages around the world, though, is, um, well, for me personally, it I didn't know exactly what kind of wine I wanted to make. I know I liked Pinot. Mm-hmm. Um but I wasn't going to these destinations based on a style that I thought I was trying to acquire. Um, you were thinking, I'll go to these great Pinot producers around the world kind of thing. Well, first the vintages started to shape me because I'd get them thrown in my lap and I'd take the opportunity because I knew they were great houses. So, you know, after um, leaving Shandon and going to Napa, um, I jumped back over and was meant to do a vintage at Bannockburn. Mm-hmm. Um with Michael Glover, mm-hmm. um, which for me, that his styles of wine um, may be in completely the opposite of mine, but his way of communicating his passion is right on par with who I am. Sure. So I ate every one of his words like chocolate truffles. It was just, he's just amazing in that sense. And I got here and um, we had been telephone courting, talking about, you know, because he likes to build a relationship um, with somebody before he does vintage with them. And I remember Evan had connected us on the phone and he, um, he ran into Evan in Torquay somewhere and he said, Oh, had you, have you spoke to my girlfriend yet about the interview? How did, how did her interview go? And he said, Oh, I don't know. I think you should ask her. She interviewed me. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, of course I, I accepted and, um, we went out and visited and he opened a 96 or an 86, um, Shiraz because he couldn't find 85 my birth year but he's that generous you know it's like he wants you to get on board and feel the experience and I lost my visa my visa didn't tick back over so um, unfortunately I didn't get to do that vintage Mm. Um, so I was scrambling uh, and I went and helped out at um, Jembrook Hill Tessa at Kuyong and this is before we were great friends but I always had a lady crush on her and Kuyong Chardonnay, I have a really big soft spot for. 
Um, and Alex and the Barossa, which is wow, why. Wow, okay. Which is why. So it's almost it, like you got three different weeks, vintage experiences. Little weeks in one here year. and there until I went on to rip on. So I was scrambling to get a full vintage somewhere, but I had to go get another visa. Yeah. Um, my visa came through. Fortunately, down Central Otago there, a lot later than uh, we are in Australia. Well, that's how I could get it because <laughs> yeah. I was panicking. Yeah. But, um, and I ended up working in the vineyard at Ripon predominantly. Wow. Um, yeah, the porter, head porter. So I got really butch uh, <laughs> cut after that. But yeah, so that, that was really beautiful, having these small little experiences um, and being taught by everyone. But really a shame till this day. Um, that I never got to work for Michael mm. because I really I have a really soft spot for him, mm. um, and it, I think it kind of always left our relationship a little bit bitter because I think he had developed you know at last minute he had to get which he ended up getting I think Sebastian like a, a sommelier who did a great job and everything but yeah it just it was sad mm-hmm. um, but it was my reality and I believe it was fate to some extent yeah. as well um, so yes yeah, so I went on to work at Rip Arm. And then from Ripon, I went home and was waiting for my visa to work at Domaine de Visu because I had met the son. Johnny Etienne was doing vintage at Kuyang. So, jet. Yeah, Jet. But this is ama- how amazing life is. Yeah. So if I wouldn't have lost my vintage at Bannockburn, mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't have gone on to help Tessa and meet Jet at yep. Kuyang, yep. which he said he really wanted to work in Napa Valley. Yep. And... Being the opportunist that I always am, I looked at him and I went, hmm, France, love to work there. Didn't know much about Gamay, uh, crew Gamay, a lot um, at the time. Had a few, but never felt the way I do about it now. Um, and I was like, oh, this is great. And I go, how about I help you get a vintage in Napa and you send me home to your family? Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, but we do everything by the books. So we got to get you a visa, man. My life of getting visas, was it's like at least a year of energy. AU is pretty strict about that sort of thing. Yeah. So I basically, we spent lots of months trying to get me a visa. And at one point, Martine said, I just don't, I went back home um, after uh, Ripon and she said, uh, look, I just don't know if we're going to get you uh, in a vintage. So I got um, a last minute vintage at Shea in Oregon which is another a really great winery. Like they sell from their vineyard, Antiquaterra and um, the girl from Sininaquan. Um, and she said, oh, you lost your visa, blah, 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 but I have a friend in parliament. So I'll, I'll, we'll try one more thing. And yep, he got me in. So I had to turn down my vintage at Oregon, but I was that kind of person that was like, if grapes are being harvested and it's, and I'm not doing something about it, I, I'm going to die. I'm mm. just not, I'm not going to be able to handle it. So mm. I was always trying to play that balancing act of, if something was going to fall through, I needed to have something right behind it. And it's a really hard balancing act because you can piss people, a lot of people off um, and you don't want to. You want to be really honest with them. So, I mean, like when I was working with Kuyong and all that, that was all free labor. Like a lot of the work I've done in this industry has been, a lot of it's been really unpaid. Um, because if you want to learn something. Um, you got to make sacrifices. Mm, and education for me um, was priceless. That's mm. what I needed. So I went to Visu and was there for three months. Um, probably the best experience of my life to date. Um, Pierre is like my father um, and he is the godfather of my child. And he's coming down in February to help out in the cellar. Wow. Yeah. But he asked me what I wanted um, for my daughter for her birth gift. And I said, I want you to get on a plane. And get over here. And he never leaves his cellar. He doesn't even go up the street. Mm. Um, but that was for me. Probably- oh, they are pretty beautiful cellars, to be fair. <laughs> well, I was there before the new cellar was oh, being built. So yeah. I went back in 14. So we'll get there really fast. So I left Visu, came back home, um, and worked at Mount Langy. Um, right. Yeah, in 14. Okay. And then after working at Langy, I decided that I wanted to... Um, make my own wines. Um, and so I went on to do my last couple stints. I always wanted to do Italy and I was lined up with Chiara Boskis, um, with Sally. We were going, she came very last minute. So I went back to the States and worked in Napa just for a few weeks, really fast, was there for the major earthquake, which was quite scary. Yeah. And then, yeah, I was literally a two minute walk from the head of the hub of where the earthquake started. The epicenter. The epicenter. Yeah. It was 
crazy. Um, and then jumped on a plane and went to Chiara. And on the so you went from California to Italy, After four two weeks, places just... that are terrible for earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm from California. So Fair enough. Can't be afraid of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I went and finished Beaujolais Nouveau with Pierre. Right. So I left um, Chiara and then right at the end, because that's why vintage lasts so long in, uh, at Pierre in Domaine de Vissous, because you do all the crews first, and yep. then you start Beaujolais Nouveau. And then we actually hand deliver in Lyon, and we package everything up for Japan, and we go to a warehouse and do everything together. So I was back with the boys, which was amazing. Um, and my wine's called Alexia because the main seller hand there, um, I became his uh, the mother, uh, godmother of his daughter, uh-huh. and her name's Alexia, so that's why my Grenache is named Alexia. Um, so we were all back together working, and it was it was really fantastic. And we went to Paris again, and Pierre always takes me to the Beaujolais Nouveau celebration in Paris, and we go around to all of Willie's wine bar, juveniles. So we've I've always, now I'm good friends with Tim from juveniles because mm-hmm. Pierre, and um, and he's really my dad. It's like it's like beautiful. My my own father. Um, after hearing my experience there, took it upon himself, which my dad's pretty quiet, shy, shyer um, guy, and I, we're very different personalities. But um, he hand wrote a letter um, to the family without even telling me about, and I've been calling him Papa to my dad, you know, like Papa's doing this. Papa, I've called him Papa the whole time, and um, my dad just said I could genuinely see something really changed her and ignited her there, and. It was, as her father, like, I just want to say thank you for taking such good care of my child. And it was really amazing to hear. So so in a nutshell, my experience was amazing. Like, mm. I miss it every day. Mm. So I went back there in um, 14, and I remember my last day with Pierre. I missed my flight. So we were here we are saying this, like, crazy goodbye, and I'm crying, and then he drives me. And, um, yeah, it wasn't 12 o'clock um, in the morning or at tw- or 12 at midnight it was 12 in the afternoon yeah so i missed that uh, <laughs> like by, by a long by 12, time by 12 hours yeah. yeah so yeah we went back and i looked i remember looking at him he goes oh hello again and i just looked at him and we were having some last wines he always opened amazing wines like dagno and Koch and francois Koch com- goes to domaine de during beaujolais nouveau rolls up has three or four bottles of his wine and most of them are probably like two Bourgogne and then, you know, maybe Polini and a, and a Merceau. And he said, now I need, I'll take a barrel of Beaujolais Nouveau. And he takes a barrel. Whoa. Never says when he's coming. And so, I mean, I had a great time drinking all of Pierre's Coche, let me tell you. Um, and Dag and I used to be his good friends, so he loved, we drank a lot of Silex. So this was somebody who was broad drinking as well. And, you know, Alain Grayo came and visited and we had lunch together and, we were drinking Jamais. So Pierre really exposed me to a lot. He wasn't just somebody drinking from his cellar or from his region. He was mm-hmm. a really dynamic winemaker and a really dynamic drinker, which was an education in itself because he's so generous. Yeah. Um, and so I looked at him and I said, I'm about to go home and make wine. I think I can do it. And because, um, you know, I don't know. You always ask yourself um, those questions. You you always been told what to do. Yeah, you, I, I guess that that sort of was going to be my my next and possibly final question yeah, was because I talk a lot. How do you how do you think um, all these wonderful experiences you had, whether it be you know traveling as a as a model, working in television, and then you know immersing yourself as much as possible in in wine in terms of winemaking and, and viticulture around the world, how do you think that they've all influenced the way that you choose to to make your wine now? Uh, I They definitely gave me the experience and the confidence, um, but I didn't know until I actually was pressing my Grenache what kind of winemaker I was until I tasted it off the press and was like, okay, now I know who has totally imprinted on me for life. And that and that was Visu because mm-hmm. my Grenache looks like Grenache, but it in so many ways it's it's the palette of a, a crew gamay producer as well. And um I think that last final experience, um uh 
you know, working in with at Visu, it imprinted on me. And I didn't know it because I wasn't trying to make a certain kind of wine when I was making my wines for the first time at Lethbridge. Um, and thank God for Alex Burns and, and Ray's um, advice from time to time. It was really nice to have that small transition mm -hmm. as well in the sense where I was doing everything alone. But I always had um, an educated opinion um, so to speak, if so I ever needed it. To, to a, you were sort of saying, look, this is what I want to do. What do you think? No. Like, no? Never. I would never give somebody that much control of my thoughts. No way. I would say, I don't want to add acid. I okay. don't want to do this. Yeah. What are the repercussions of this down the line? I'm not afraid of high pH wines because in Napa, I worked with pHs of four. Everybody here is so focused on 3.5 pHs, you know, because of Brett or because of... So I was more on the side of how far can I push this? and Without would, having, to, having to intervene myself? Yeah. Right. And then Alex and Ray would automatically go, oh, when you grow up in the wine industry, you know, you'll be cleaning less and doing that and you'll be <laughs> adding acid two grams at the crush, you know. You, and I just looked at them and I was like, well, probably not. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And, that, and they would always just tell me, here, this is this is – the worst it can get. And this is what you can play with, in my opinion. And I kind of took all of what they said into consideration, but I never fully followed what I was told. Okay. Um, I always said, oh, you want me to add that much? I'll cut that in half. So, because uh, I've always been more of a minimalist mm -hmm. in that sense. Um, and yeah, I think um, the kind of winemaker I am now that I look at even my Shiraz um, is that I... I have an old traditionalist mentality um, and I'm not afraid to let the wine and the vineyard be what they are and I'm not, I'm not afraid to take risks mm. um, and I'm not trying to do something that's never been done before. I'm just trying to make wines that I really want to come home and drink and in 15 I, I did do that. We, I think mean, there's never really any bottles left in this house and I think that's all I could have hoped for. I hope you had some to sell. You won't just drink them I'm, yourself I'm at home. Sold out. Yeah, <laughs> they're all sold out. So, um, so you had uh, you've got a 2016 wine or wines. Yeah, that will be uh, released in yeah. the future. Nebbiolo as well to add it to that. That's exciting. Uh, had a baby in the middle of 2016, <laughs> so the Nebbiolo is Chicho, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I'm very excited about it. Um, it's only 500 liters. Yeah, and everything I do is. <clears throat> I always just start from a really small production level and grow in, into it, into the industry and see how I'm being received. And obviously I'm very influenced by somebody who knows how to sell wine. So um, I'm sure that helps a lot. Yeah, but 16 is looking great. I mean, 15 was incredible, an yep. incredible vintage yep. just to get into the wine industry. And I yep. was told that by everyone, you know, even Michael Dillon, like what a great vintage to get started. Um, uh, but, you know, in, in chatting with you, there's lots and lots in the works for the future. So it's, uh, I'm sure it's a pretty exciting time to, uh, to be getting interested in Sierra's wines. Um, Sierra, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time to be on the show. Um, for people who want to get in touch with you or follow you, you know, on social media, can you just share with them um, websites and different social media yeah. accounts you may have? So, um yeah, it's just uh, readwines.com, and um, that's the only minimal website I have at the moment. Um, we're building a winery as well, so we should be in there for 2017, hopefully, cross your fingers. Um, and that's just about 25Ks outside of Hall's Gap, so it's the only road going in, so you won't be able to miss us on the right-hand side. Um, and eventually we'll be planting a vineyard in the next couple years to come as well out there. Exciting. Um, yeah, Gamay in the works. Um, yeah, so. Are you are you on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram? Yeah, Facebook. It's just uh, my personal account. Mm -hmm. But so probably don't Facebook me. <laughs> <laughs> you need to set up a page. Um, yeah, and also my husband distributes my wines. So stock on hand wines, that's really how I am. Um, so for people in the trade, Hassel, Evan, 
at stock on hand for when the 2016s will be released so that you can secure some of those. But uh, look, uh, it's been fascinating chatting with you. It's been great to hear about your your, your story and I'm excited to, to try the wines myself. But uh, yeah, thank you very much. Hopefully I didn't cheer you off too much. No, no, not at all. It's wonderful. <laughs> no, thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Uh, you can follow me on social media on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino, and the podcast can be found on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, if you like my Facebook page, uh, you'll actually be able to see lots of links to cool stuff and some photos that I share. Uh, and if you visit my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, uh, you'll actually be able to watch uh, lots of different videos, particularly my Let's Taste videos, specifically uh, a Let's Taste video I did recently of one of Sierra's wines, the Alexia Grenache 2015. Make sure you like uh, some of the videos and leave comments if you'd like to share. Uh, I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on many different uh, podcast hosting apps and platforms uh, like iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, Podbean. Uh, subscribing means that you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, and it's great if you leave a rating and a review. Make sure you mention which is your favorite episode of the podcast. You can visit me at intrepidwino.com where you'll be able to access all that information as well as read a little bit about my background and some of the, uh, the travels that I've done around the world. Uh, as always, uh, it's great to hear from you, so please do get in contact with me at thevincast at gmail.com. Uh, but until next time, bye. Bye.